Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Kaplan Professional, the leading provider of online education for Australia's finance industry. Studying my Master of Applied Finance with Kaplan Professional provided me with the flexibility and support to deepen my specialist knowledge while balancing my professional commitments. If you're planning to sit the CFA exam, Kaplan Professional is also renowned for the most respected preparation materials in the industry. Visit kaplanprofessional.edu.au to learn more. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RASC Group's Financial Services Guide on the RASC Finance website. In this episode, I chat with Robin Bowerman, the Head of Corporate Affairs at Vanguard Australia. Robin is a former journalist, an author, and has been with Vanguard since 2003. Globally, Vanguard is the world leader in low-cost index funds and exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. 
It has changed the world of finance for almost every Australian, whether we choose to admit it or not. Therefore, I think some of the talking points in this episode should be heard and understood by investors of all stripes. Robin and I talk about his journey, common failures by smart investors, culture at Vanguard, why almost all active funds underperform over many years, and the prospects for index investing going forward. We start with Robin's journey long before he started at Vanguard. Yes, a bit of an unusual background probably for someone in funds management these days, but I started out as a journalist, um, cadet journalist on the Hobart Mercury uh, many moons ago. Um, Basically, my first exposure in the sort of investing world was uh, literally walking around to the Hobart Stock Exchange and picking up the the quotes at the end of each day and going back and and trying to make some sort of article out of that. And um, Mm. then my real introduction, I guess, to investing was probably one of the... uh, I don't know whether they still do it, but the ASX used to run education seminars. Mm-hmm. So I went along to a, um, you know, one of those seminars that was run introducing people to the share market. The share market was not something I grew up with. My parents were not share investors. Um, you know, much more sort of in the small business you know, term deposit sort of mm-hmm. world. So that opened a whole world of opportunity um, and risk. Uh, as we found out, but um, but yeah, that was sort of the part of that sort of journey, I guess, into that, and then a bit of studying around economics, uh, where, where I was quite interested and sort of followed up through that through the journalism. So there was no initially there was no uh, financial coverage from your in your in your journalism role. There was what were you no, I, I was uh, in fact I was covering politics and um, you know general news, uh, everything um, mm-hmm. that would happen you know, in, a, in a small regional sort of metropolitan newspaper. So no, the the Exposure to business journalism, as opposed to investing journalism, mm-hmm. really came when I worked on the City Morning Herald, and um, I, I you know, went from the general news area into the business desk for a, for a couple of years, and then ended up in London on the Financial Times, which obviously was you know, pretty focused on at business stuff. So the business piece really um, was, was where I sort of bridged from general journalism into uh, the world of business and sort of um, money, and then. When I returned to Australia with my wife, um, was lucky enough to get a job uh, with Bob Gottliebson and David Koch and Ross Greenwood on BRW Personal Investor. So, and that's when I really became passionate about the sort of personal money stuff because I realised you know, this is actually how you could link journalism and help educate people, um, share stories of real world investors and what real people were doing as mm. opposed to the theory. Okay, so how many? So this was the the magazine. Yep, yeah, it was a uh, personal investor. Yeah, and how many people was, was this going to? Uh, at its peak, it was going to uh, well over 100,000 people a month. Great. Um, yeah, so no, it had uh, pretty strong coverage. I mean, it's back in the days before the internet, um, mm. you know, that's how long ago it was. It was sort of, so it was part of the, you know, it had the ASX um, monthly tables, which a lot of, uh, you know, some of your older listeners might still remember. You used to get, get the ASX journal uh, each month and go through and can look up every stock and um, you know what was on offer and all the different uh, dividend rates etc cetera, etc cetera. so it was a huge amount of data it was like 30 odd pages of you know I think seven point data or something <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was pretty um, it was but it was the Bible in terms of ASX data at that point apart from what you got on the radio or TV news okay so people pick this up and then call their broker and yep execute a trade yep absolutely okay great so um, the next stage of your career is of a lot of interest to me, uh, or I suppose this, ha- uh, correct me if I'm wrong, happened when you were at Fairfax, um, mm-hmm. and you decided to write a book, and the book was a wealth <coughs> of experience, uh, a wealth of experience. Investors share their secrets. 
Can you tell us more about this, why you wrote it, perhaps who you wrote it with and, and what you found? Sure, yeah. I mean, it, to be frank, it happened by accident. Um, Jeremy Duffield was the managing director of Vanguard, who I'd met a couple of times uh, as a journalist. And we were at a Australian Investors Association conference on the Gold Coast, and he literally uh, bumped into me outside the uh, one of the presentation rooms and said, you know, and just said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm thinking about coming along to your session on, um, you know, mm. the greatest mistakes investors make. Mm. And he said, well, that's good because I haven't really prepared any presentation per se. I'm hoping people will share their stories. But he said, but if no one will, then this is going to be a very short and dull presentation. So can you come in and perhaps, you know, use your journalistic skills, you know, prop share a bit or ask a few questions mm-hmm. and we can try and get the audience involved and see how we go. So you passed around the mic and... Yep, so we had a couple of roving mics and uh, we had a couple hundred people in the room, I think, and um, we needn't have worried, or he needn't have worried, because we sort of set the scene about, you know, are people prepared to share uh, not their most successful investing stories, mm-hmm. but their mistakes, where they'd really done something dumb in mm-hmm. hindsight. And people were almost fighting for the microphone to share, you know, weird and wonderful ways that they'd managed to lose money. Everything from um, exotic agricultural tax deduction schemes uh, to, uh, you know, Vanuatu tax shelters. <laughs> There's a couple of the more weird ones mm-hmm. that I remember. But in, in essence, these were a bunch of, I mean, they, they were at the Australian Investor Association conference. So, you know, they were clearly people who were very engaged with investing and probably pretty successful in their business lives, etc., and comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. So they were very comfortable sort of sharing, you know, um, some of the great stuff-ups they'd made along the way in the interest of helping other people. And so we, we realised at the end of it that there was a rich vein of sort of material here mm-hmm. and, you know, fantastic if you could share those sort of mistakes and real-world learnings. Like, I mean, these are not silly people usually. These are people, these are people who've made, you know, some pretty fundamental errors. So the long story short was we went back to the conference next year, but this that time we went with proper recording equipment. Okay. And actually, and again, and but this time we did it as a full plenary session. There were, I don't know, four or 500 people. And so we were a lot more disciplined about gathering the data and the stories that people went. And then all, all we had to do was uh, sit down and write the book. Mm. <laughs> which, um, you know, I spent a fair bit of uh, a long summer holiday uh, sort of compiling it with Jeremy and locking ourselves away for days at a time to um, pull it together. And, yeah, the, the book came out as a, a, you know, I think a pretty good read for people to let people know that, you know, there's lots of things which perhaps people find ways to lose money where, which are not that silly. Mm. They're actually just fundamental errors and basic mistakes, things like, you know, when market share markets are running really high, that's the time when people get greedy and they want to get in versus the time when the share markets, uh, you know, come off 20 or 30% and people are running to the exits, um, mm. you know, the, the sort of thing where you, you're basically buying in when the market's high and selling out when it's low. So just some fundamental timing sort of issues and, you know, some of the lessons we took out of that were actually really, I think, pretty useful. Certainly the feedback we got around from the book was was pretty good and uh, certainly people today still occasionally call, call me up and talk about it. I think it's about 180 pages in total. Um, it's not a hard read. No, no, okay. Well, 
I encourage people to give it a read. I, I was trying to find a copy myself. Um, where's the best place to Can you still get it? I, I actually don't think it's still in print. I think it, it got re, was reprinted a couple of times, but um, we can uh, perhaps check that out. And, you know, maybe we can put up a, a version of someone on the website for yeah, people to look at. Yeah, yeah, definitely we will. Um, how did you filter through? Did, were you just looking for the, the clangers, the, the worst mistakes? or? Well, I mean, we, we had so much material to work for. The real challenge was actually how do you so it was really around categorizing it and bringing it down to you know what what you know where people make common mistakes mm-hmm. so particularly things like around trying to market time um yeah. you know the the making investment decisions based on tax outcomes as mm. opposed to investment outcomes for example um, a lot of the people in the audience were, were medical practitioners and I don't know what it is about doctors and lawyers, but they seem very focused on tax. <laughs> so something to do with their incomes. <laughs> possibly to something like they don't get enough deductions. But anyway, they, they are very focused on tax. So they were very susceptible, it seemed, to um, the latest sort of agricultural tax scheme, the trees, you know, these sorts of things seemed to have an immense amount of appeal. F- forgetting the fact that as an investment, they were a complete dud mm. most of the time and lost money. Uh, but the tax deduction was the thing which really influenced them. So it was things like that that we looked for and also trying to, you know, the book was probably at the early stages of when I was in getting interested and in trying to learn more about investor behaviour. So here we had a bit of a sample of mm. groups of pretty sophisticated, um, you know, generally reasonably well-off investors and what sort of behaviours were common. Uh, across those sorts of groups and you know I think the study of behavioural finance is really pretty young it's probably 30 years Mm -hmm. old and I think we've learned a lot more that you know investing is not about just the data not just the performance numbers it's actually about things that that as human beings we're wired to do I mean the bottom line is as human beings we're not well wired to be investors Mm -hmm. you know our emotions can take over you know, fear, flight can actually overrule things like rational thought. So, you know, the the economists, you know, the pure economists sort of, you know, work on the assumption that everyone acts rationally, and the reality is that the the, the reverse is actually the true. And people like you know Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman, I think, have done amazingly good work mm. at showing that you know there's so much more that goes on in the investor's mind, whether it's listening to podcasts whether it's listening to TV, um, you know, watching the internet. And, you know, sometimes the hardest thing to do can be to tune out the noise. You know, when you turn on, you know, on your phone, the TV news every night, and you're being bombarded with information, it sort of screams at people to do something. Mm. Where often in investing, the best piece of advice you can get is do nothing. Set it up, leave it alone, go away. And that, that's, we're, not, we're not wired to do that. It's interesting, uh, one of my favourite business writers, Morgan Housel, says 99% of long-term investing is doing nothing, yeah. but it's the other 1% that changes changes your life. Um, this um, this point in your career, I suppose, these early learnings, um, I'm interested to know why, at the time of writing this book, and presumably having quite a successful career in journalism, you decided to step over the fence and, and join Vanguard in 2003. Sure, I mean, there was a, a, a few factors at work there. One was that um, I'd been I'd been um, offered Stanford University and done a, a sort of digital media course, mm-hmm. and I saw the um, the potential impact of uh, the internet um, online world on 
you know, traditional print journalism. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, I was in an environment which was very traditional print and they were, you know, fairly slow. I think that obviously they were not wanting to cannibalise existing mm-hmm. businesses, but, you know, so, so short story, a little bit of frustration built up around um, the ability to get into, you know, what I thought was going to be the future of journalism, which was very much sort of online world and, um, you know, doing everything sort of digitally. The second piece, though, is probably goes to the type of journalism that I was working in, which was, um, you know, I was, I was the editor of uh, you know, Personal Investor, now Smart Investor. And, you know, the, a lot of the sort of articles we're writing around that was about which hot stock tips there were this month, mm-hmm. um, which fund manager was shooting the lights out, you know, out, outperforming the index, etc. And, and, you know, I even created some of the um, Fund Manager of the Year awards, which are still running today, mm. uh, somewhat sadly, I think, but, um, you know, those things were starting. And, and I'd, I just, you know, not being the quickest or sharpest guy around, but it did over a period of years realise that, you know what, I write about these people who had done really, really well last year. When I look at what they've done a year later, and I started writing about how have the Fund Manager of the Year's gone one, three, five years after they won the award, and the answer was nearly always that they'd actually reverted back to the pack or worse. Mm. So the hot, hot stock tips, which, again, back to investor behaviour, if we put a cover out in the magazine saying 10 hot stock tips for now, the magazine would sell it, it's, it, it you know, it would sell, mm. walk out the door. If we put a cover story out there saying 10 uh, investment tips for the long term okay. or... 10 things to do with your super, uh, we'd hardly sell anything. Mm. You know, the, the, the circulation people hated me when I used to put that stuff on the cover. So it was sort of realising that actually, you know, maybe some of the journalism we were practising um, uh, in, in the personal investor days wasn't actually helping people. That what was really, uh, you know, it was actually hurting them because it was actually encouraging them to trade short term. Yeah. And the more you trade, the less typically you'll make, etc. Despite the fact that the people being talked about, you know, we interviewed were smart, very professional, working really hard. That you know, it wasn't that there was anything there. It was more just that it just showed me how hard it was to outperform the markets. Mm. About the same time, uh, Jeremy Duffield again invited me to MC um, a function. They were Vanguard was launching its retail business in Australia, and he brought out uh, Vanguard's founder um, Jack Bogle. Uh, on his one and only trip to Australia. Hmm. So at a couple of functions in Melbourne and Sydney, I got to obviously travel and meet Jack, talk to him over breakfast and uh, MC this event with him. And I've got to say, he he was a truly sort of inspirational character, probably one of the great investment thinkers of the century. Absolutely. Um, And that was a a bit of an epiphany for me in terms of, you know what, maybe we've all been wasting our time trying to – outperform the market, what we just need to do is what Jack says, which is buy the market. Mm. So I probably became began to become a, a convert to the idea of indexing as, you know, the smart way for average people like me to actually invest long-term money and uh, let markets and the sort of company and the profit growth actually, um, you know, build the wealth as opposed to me trying to outsmart mm. everyone else who's trying to outsmart me. I, I can imagine it would have been wonderful... Um being joint MC or 
sharing the stage with Jack Bogle. That's actually a great segue into the next line of thought and I suppose life here at Vanguard. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Vanguard began and what its mission was in the early days? Yes, well again, back to Jack. I mean, he, he set the business up. He set it up unusually as a mutual. So it's, it's so the people who are the, in, the investors are also the shareholders in the US business. Okay. So it's, um, it effectively runs as an at cost. Mm-hmm. So it's not listed on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not a, a um, you know, private company that's making a lot of money for you know, shareholders. The shareholders and the investors sort of one and the same. So, inter- you know, it may feel like a slightly technical structural issue, but I fundamentally believe it drives a lot of the behaviour and a lot of the culture at Vanguard. And it's actually what's made us successful today, where it's gone from a very small uh, experimental um, startup, you know, with about twelve million bucks or something. I think they had to invest the first first time they mm-hmm. floated to today, which is you know over five trillion. US dollars um, within about wow. 20 million investors worldwide and in Australia we look after uh, or we're entrusted to look after about 140 billion of Australian investors money either through institutional super funds or through advisors or through self-managed super funds using ETFs etc so you know heavy sort of responsibility to actually look after that sort of money so you know, Vanguard started with a very simple idea that rather than try and beat the market we would, uh, you know, Jack Bogle launched the first uh, retail index fund. And, the, you know, the rest, as I say, is history, but it took a long time to be mm. successful. You know, it's taken nearly 40 years to get to that level of success. And then uh, Jeremy Duffield, who was a Melbourne boy, but was working in the US, was a, uh, did an economics degree in the US, and then went to work for Jack Bogle and worked with him over there for about, I think, 15 years, and then wanted to come home to Australia. So he came back and set up Vanguard in Australia here, what, 22 years ago now. Then, you know, built the business, both in institutional, sort of retail, advisor space, etc. And uh, I guess um, the great good fortune on my part was having met Jeremy a number of times. Um, he eventually invited me to, you know, uh, apply for the job as uh, Vanguard, as the head of the retail business uh, uh, 15 years ago now. It's hard to believe, I think, that the Australian arm has been around just over two decades. Yeah. And in that time, there's been explosive growth, I think you could say. I'm, I'm interested to, to learn more about the structure and how, um, I suppose, in more granular detail, how you think that has emanated through the organisation and into the culture, um, perhaps even towards the incentives and, and, and what drives people day-to-day at Vanguard. Um, I often meet with fund managers who reward their staff um, quite handsomely with equity or cash bonuses for good performance or share ideas in the portfolio. But obviously that's flipped on its head here uh, in the sense that um, it's about understanding the things that you can control as, as an investor and delivering those outcomes. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the, um, you know, I don't think there's any great secret to it. I mean, a part of it is, you know, the mission uh, that Vanguard launched with was was to, um, as I said, launch the index funds. So obviously the job there is to track the index as tightly as you can. If you're paying away a lot of money in distribution fees to commissions to advisors or you know bonuses and these sorts of things, then you're going to under- underperform the index uh, pretty dramatically. So first point is keep the costs as low as possible. And I think you know, Bogle was an absolute evangelist for low cost investing. 
I think that you know, it fundamentally drives a lot of what we do. I mean, we have never paid for distribution around the world, so we don't pay commissions to salespeople to sell our product. And when we first opened the doors in Australia, that was a challenge because a lot of the advisors here were used to receiving product fees and commissions, mm. etc. So, you know, part of the success of Vanguard has been driven by the tailwinds of regulatory reform, which is. Um, you know, when the ban came in on conflicted remuneration post, post the future financial advice reforms, you know, post-GFC, post-storm collapse, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of advisors realised that those sorts of payments were, you know, distorting investment decisions. And they were actually in the interest of the advisor, not in the interest of Absolutely, the investor. They were, yeah. yeah. So, and again, we're seeing a little bit more of it play out in, in, in the Royal Commission uh, that's, that's sort of ongoing at the moment. So I think we'll end up with more of that. But I think we've certainly seen in Vanguard, we've seen the growth in our, the, the number of advisors using Vanguard uh, has grown exponentially because they've moved to being, instead of being uh, sort of product salespeople taking a commission, they've actually moved into the world of asset allocation, portfolio construction, building core satellite portfolios, and just looking at what's the best portfolio for the investor. And charge, and, you know, advice should be paid for. It's, it can be valuable, So, but just don't hide the the value of advice and mm. wrap it up in product fees, which the investor ultimately doesn't really understand actually paying anyway. Mm. So I think that, that's a huge part of what we do. I think the other point is that, you know, for, for, as investors, what can you control, what can't you control? You can't control future performance. You know, all the products carry the same warning label. Mm. Most investors continue to ignore it. You know, past performance still sells very effectively, let me tell you. But the point is you cannot control what the performance will be in the thing. What you can control, though, is how much you're going to pay for it. So, you know, focus on things you can control. Cost is one of those, big one. Uh, Vanguard is not, we, we're strong advocates for index investing, but we have a trillion dollars invested actively. You know, we've got a good active management business. What makes our active business different to uh, a lot of other active managers, it's low cost. It gives our fund managers a head start because they don't have as much, you know, lead in the saddlebags mm-hmm. to actually outperform before they actually get there. So it's been, you know, a long and, you know, I think you use the term sort of very successful story, but it's taken a long time to get that message out there that, you know, if you look at a lot of things, cost is really an overriding factor. So you keep costs down don't pay away a lot of money in terms of commissions or product sales and you will actually by doing that you'll give the investors the best chance they can have for success over the long term and it's the discipline of actually sticking to the long term that's really the real challenge. Mm, Indeed Um, that's a great point about uh, that you make about the sales and and, and obviously keeping costs low uh, compound over many many years Um, and I think uh, I recently wrote a piece um, about the disruption caused by low-cost funds. Um, you know, when we think of disruption, we think of uh, automated checkouts or Netflix versus Blockbuster type of thing. Um, but the the impact of lowering fees uh, and obviously those commissions um, going by the wayside has been enormous for people. And m- chances are, many Australians don't even realise this inside super. Like I said, the compounding effect of that over until retirement can be I- incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 Super is a great example where you know, it, and we just released some research on our website about um, you know the, the difference in when you're retired 
the difference in paying 150 basis points in fees versus 50 basis points, you know, is you know huge, huge. Mm. Makes such a big difference over particularly over periods 30, 40 years. So, keeping costs down in superannuation funds is absolutely critical. And I think you know, it's not to say that there's not a role for active management. There is. I mean, people Australians are some of the best, some of the most um, you know, interested sort of direct share investors in the world. I mean, we've got a, a lot of direct share ownership, often due to the demutualisations of you know, Combank and mm-hmm. AMP and stuff like that. But the result, the result is, there's a lot of people who own shares directly. So, and and that that's a great way to be engaged. But the point is, you can actually spread the risk of a portfolio. The average portfolio's got four stocks on it. That is not, a, you know, there's a huge amount of risk embedded right there. By adding one uh, index fund or one ETF, where you buy the whole market, or you buy the US market, or you buy the European market, you can, you know, help the return, certainly, but you, the main thing is you lower that risk factor. So it's, that, it's just about getting that sort of sense of balance right that actually, you know, makes such a huge difference to people, particularly through things like the GFC. You know, people who had a balanced, Portfolio, which you rather say most of the superannuation funds, their default funds, are pretty well structured. But if if you actually look at the good, balanced, diversified portfolio, yes, does it take a hit when the GFC comes along? Absolutely. Uh, did it recover within a couple of years with contributions and earnings? Certainly. And you know, for younger people, the GFC was like, what's that? Mm. It's just a small blip on a on a on a long term graph these days. At the time, people thought it was you know the end of investing as we knew it. Mm. It's interesting. We'll get to um, a bit more of how asset allocation and I suppose the weightings in portfolios can um, mm-hmm. add value in a moment. But perhaps we can backpedal a, a moment and um, for some of the listeners, just explain to them exactly what passive investing is. And then I suppose we can talk about how Vanguard might deal with um, some of the events that are unfolding in the market at the moment. Yes, yeah, so sure. So, I mean, and, and I've, got to, I've got to be honest, I dislike the term passive because mm-hmm. um, it sort of implies we don't do anything. Uh, I mean, our investment guys, trust me, do do a fair bit during the day to manage the portfolios. So index investing is really saying we accept the fact that we, we're, uh, what we want to do here is track the long-term growth of, of a market portfolio. So if you think about what's on the, um, the news every night, you know, the ASX 200 index, so if you buy an index fund that tracks the ASX 200 or 300, then it, they, it will own all of those 200, 300 companies in the in the market cap weight uh, of their size on the index it, within the market. So it's you know if you'll end up owning BHP, you'll own NAB, you'll own ANZ, all that stuff right the way down through to the smaller stocks at the bottom end of the 200, and then as as cash comes in, the portfolio is rebalanced around those weights. The index may change. You know, some companies may mm-hmm. um, collapse, go broke. They go out of the index. That gets sold. They something else comes in. It'll get bought. But at the end of the day, what you're saying is, the Australian share market, the Australian economy, uh, will grow. You know, we expect it would grow over the long term with company dividends and company uh, you know, share price. So what you're really doing is buying into the economic growth of the country, of the country, mm-hmm. and that it's as simple as that. And as Jack Bogle says, you know, trying to pick the winning stock, you know, is, you know, is NAB going to do better than ANZ or Westpac and whatever? Um, you know, that's trying to pick the needle in the haystack. How about we just buy the haystack mm-hmm. and be done with it? I'm interested to know how Vanguard, um, say, deals with corporate events or changes to the portfolio. I suppose some people might believe that somehow 
someone could get advance notice on what the, the market portfolio is going to buy when there's an index change, for example. Um, perhaps you could touch on those two points. So how changes happen and uh, corporate events. Yes, yeah, so, so, I mean, uh, corporate events, you know, a good example where, you know, we'll look at those and, and the portfolio team will, will make a valuation judgment about what, you know, what, what's in the best interest of the investors and the portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, you know, share buybacks are a good example. I mean, we, we participate, um, we, make act, we make decisions around each of those things as they come along. Mergers and acquisitions, the same. So, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, what will drive us is what does the index look like post-event? Mm -hmm. And what the weight of that is, and then, and obviously the portfolio is adjusted. Part of the the management of the portfolio, and something that Vanguard has you know worked very hard over the years, is you know, we we don't want to impact the market. You don't want to, by our sort of action, uh, be pushing prices up or down. Uh, so one of the um, things that our portfolio managers you know, try and do is, is is be able to transact in the market without. Uh, having you know, marginal sort of effect on or notable effect. So trading around some of these events, um, you know, there's a variety of techniques that they use, and, and you know, it may be that they're, they're if, if a, I mean, a good example is if say a company is floating, and it's going to float and be a significant part of an index, uh, you know, pretty much from day one, then you know you could either wait until it joins the index at a certain point, or you could perhaps, um, you know, as it comes in, buy some of the, the, the stock up or futures up on the way through. So there's lots of portfolio techniques that are all geared towards minimising the tracking error. Mm -hmm. So keeping the portfolio as close as we practically can to what the index number is and what the, what the value of it is. One of the interesting things um, that people may not know, some listeners may not know, is that many of the smaller index funds and ETFs that have come to market may not uh, fully replicate the, the group of shares that are underlying the portfolio. Can you explain the idea and the concept of replication? Yeah, so full replication would be, let's say, take the ASX 300 index that we, that we run our fund to. You know, it will own 297, 299 of the 300 stocks. So it basically owns each of those, com of those companies mm -hmm. in the market cap weighting of the index. So that, that's what, what you would call full replication. If you look at uh, other portfolios, I mean, now, if smaller funds um, that don't have the sort of assets uh, to invest across the whole range will sample. Now, that can be perfectly legitimate, and, you know, sometimes, in, particularly in, say, um, fixed income uh, indexes where there could be three or 4,000 names, you know, holding mm -hmm. all of them, the tran you know, it's, it's a constant decision between holding everything and holding uh, enough to give you the, um, the effect of tracking the index without the transaction cost. Because at some point, the tail, the small, uh, you know, the zero point something percent holding uh, causes you to transact, which is a cost, uh, but it will have almost zero effect on the um, performance of the fund. So, you know, the sampling side of it is, is, is both legitimate, but it's something that investors, you know, want to understand the, the technique that their fund's being managed to you know, should look at it and should be well disclosed in, in sort of the documents about the fund. Yeah, indeed, I think um, it's particularly prevalent in some of the smaller um, index indexes in Australia simply because the liquidity constraints there. Um, I'd like to shift now to your yours and, and, and Vanguard's investment philosophy. And um, you recently wrote a, a, a piece on LinkedIn, or I shouldn't say recently, it was actually in 2016, which I'll link to in the show notes. But um, it relates to the idea of active funds underperforming. 
Um, depending on the year, um, we can safely assume that around 60% of active funds will underperform the, the market index. Um, and as time goes on, we typically see that percentage getting higher and higher. Um, author J.L. Collins from the US believes that 99% uh, of active funds underperform um, a passive market index over 30 years. I'm interested to know why you believe active funds and active fund managers underperform. Well, good, great question. I, I, I guess the fundamental reason we think active managers you know, in those sort of speaver type results and that underperform is down to cost. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fees make it this makes it really, really hard to outperform. And I think what, what we typically see is um, some strong performance for one, two. In any one year, I can guarantee you there will be an active fund that will absolutely shoot the lights out. Mm. They will have made a call and it will have paid off and it will you know, be based on really good research or intuition or wh- whatever the reason, you know, whatever thematic thing that, that people have picked up great and it's paid off and it's paid off spectacularly well. The problem is when you look at the same product three years, four years down the track, mm-hmm. it typically will have reverted back to the average or below average or the median. So, you, you know, from an investor's point of view, and I saw this in my journalism career with personal investors, you'd, you'd see people on this roller coaster ride mm-hmm. where they would do spectacularly well and, you know, everyone would be boasting about it in the, in the golf club. Um, and then you know you go quiet for a year or two because it would have underperformed, and, it, and you just see it being repeated time and time again. It's fundamentally because it, it's really difficult to actually outperform the market over a long period of time. So that's why we don't think it's about saying that indexing is you know 100 percent of what you should do. It's actually how you combine indexing and active. There are some things where there's a, definitely a role for active funds management. For example, some people like to tilt their portfolio retirees and SMSFs, for example, in uh, towards dividend yields. Well, that, that's any time you do something like that, it's a bet against the market cap weight mm-hmm. of the market, but you're doing it for legitimate portfolio construction reasons. Again, back to an advisor sort of helping work it out, what are you, what, what, what's your risk profile, what actually works for you. So you may want overseas exposure to tech companies. So, a, you know, an active technology um, fund may actually work for you. You know, it, it really comes down to the individual preferences of the, of the portfolio and the individual. But you know, our argument is at least start with a core of really well diversified, low cost index funds, and then add the active uh, satellites, if you like, um, that that sort of reflect your either. You know, if if you think something's going to outperform, why wouldn't you go there? Mm. You know, take the bet. But just understand the bet you're taking is against the market. And often over the long term, those sorts of things tend not to play out. I, I believe that uh, for the majority of Australians, passive investing is certainly something that warrants their attention and absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, interestingly, from the post uh, that you, you put out, you also talked about the, the rapid flow of information and um, I suppose the competition for an analytical edge amongst this. I mean, there's many smart people in our industry, yep. as you noted earlier on. Um, and those, I suppose, edges, as I refer to them, uh, typically can be competed away very quickly. Um, I was also interested to, to know that, um, to see in the research from Spiva that uh, many small cap fund managers also underperform, which is typically where we see, um, you know, there's perhaps some type of informational advantage, albeit very minor. Uh, but that was interesting anyway. Um, no, I, mean, I think, you know, yeah. one of the... Um you, know, you, you talked a bit about how things have changed and sort of, inf- I mean, obviously the flow of information today is 
uh, immeasurably faster than what it was 50 years ago. Mm. You know, you know, talking about from carrier pigeon to sort of email <laughs> until the. I mean, one of the greatest books I've ever read on investing was Charlie Ellis's book, uh, Winning the Losers Game, mm. and you know he talks about the fact that when he started as a, as an active manager, that really you know active management wasn't that hard because you were basically betting against. Um, uh, you had a lot of knowledge about the market. You were typically trading with people who were maybe doctors and lawyers, uh, who didn't really have. They, they, was, they were doing it as a hobby or whatever they were doing. And today, when you think about it, when people go into the market to invest and take a position, they, they're up against large institutions. You know, unbelievably well-educated, hard-working people, massive amounts of computer. Um, horsepower and analytics and big mm. data capability. So you've got to ask yourself, what? why when you buy something do you think you're smarter than the rest of the universe? Because that's really what you're saying. And from an active manager point of view, that's, it gets hard because you, you have to, typically if they have a good idea, um, they're going to have to ride with it for a while because it won't be instantly successful. It could underperform for a year and then it could pay off mm. uh, or not. But you know, it takes a lot of discipline to actually be in that sort of active management world. So that's to us about, well, spread the bets, diversify the portfolio, understand what risk's actually within it. But people often talk about return. You hardly hear, when you do retail seminars, you hardly hear people talk about their risk profile. When you, when you ask them a question, what's your risk profile? They nearly always say, I'm really conservative. And when you're asking what their portfolio is, they'll probably typically have four banks, a couple of miners, a couple mm. of ETF. And they, well, that does not look like a conservative portfolio. So, you know, it's about you know investors taking on responsibility for themselves a bit and saying, I need to understand a bit about this. I need to understand what risk I've actually got in the portfolio, because ultimately, no one cares about it or will be affected by it as much as they will. Mm. It's great. That's a great point, and and, and your point about um, the the level of work that goes into making some of these active calls. Um, I recently got uh, a call from my brother-in-law who said to me uh, that that stuff about index funds and ETFs it just makes sense. Why don't more people do it? And uh, I've got an I've got an email about the same time, which I'll, I'll quote here. It says, "I started investing in Vanguard funds when I was 19, with just shy of ten thousand dollars in savings." and I've been putting in regular amounts monthly. That pot has now swollen up to close to $450,000, which I think is not bad for a 30-year-old who came to this country as an international student. And I heard that, and I, th- I thought that was fantastic. So I'll put the question to you, Robin. Why don't more people just use index strategies? Well, I'm glad to hear about this very happy Vanguard mm. customer. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we, when we actually publish on our website a an interactive index chart where people can go in and pick times and dates and over 30 years of data live they can mm. actually you know they can actually go back and, and one of the things about it is compare your own portfolio to what the market's done because a lot of people you know think they've actually done okay either with their super or with their share investments they actually haven't ever benchmarked it to the portfolio so point one would be you know take the emotion out deal with the data I think in terms of um, um, why haven't more people embraced it, you know, typically the indexing market in Australia now is about 17, 18%, we think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, with superannuation funds and with individuals. So that means that there's 80 plus percent being invested actively. Mm. Um, so your point's a good one. Um, I think, yeah, we, something we think about quite a bit and certainly talk about with investors, you know, but part of it is it, in, investing is, you know, as we, as we go through school and university, you know, what's the fundamental thing we're taught is that basically if you work hard and you do more stuff, you'll be more successful. Mm. And then suddenly someone comes along and says, you know what, stop trying to buy and sell all these stocks, just buy the market and forget about it. Take the average, mm. and and we're not. I think it goes back to behavioural finance. We're all better than average, right? We're all yeah. Everyone, you ask people at, at investor seminar. Put up your hand if you're a below average driver. Very few hands mm. go up. So either they're, either they're a room of exceptional drivers, or some people are kidding themselves. I think in the investing world, you know, it's really hard to say to people. You know, it get it's just, it just feels counterintuitive to say to people you're actually better off taking the market average. Because actually, if you do that, you will be above average over the long term. You'll actually outperform, you know, your your number sort of 70 percent of the of the active shop. So it's a little counterintuitive. We think you know we've done a reasonable job at Vanguard trying to get the message out um, the website, but we can certainly do more. But again, low cost. We don't have big marketing budgets. We don't you know you don't see us on sort of television, mm. etc. Out there sort of doing a lot of stuff. But we try and help people understand it. But it is. You know, Jack Bogle spent, um, you know, I had, had the good fortune to catch up with him for a coffee uh, a few months ago in, in the US and he's now 90 odd, and but still sharp as a tack. But, you know, he's still telling the same message that he was telling, you know, when he was 40 years old. So it, it takes a long time to, to sink in. The idea of, of this zero sum game, you know, where we're all the market, if you think about us as investors, if you think every investor in Australia is the market, so by definition, half will outperform, half will underperform. Zero sum game, right? It's very simple logic, mm-hmm. but it's a really hard concept that we get the head around the kind of investing. In reality, because of transaction costs and taxes, more than half of people will underperform because mm-hmm. you, you've got to introduce the real world drag of you know, broker's costs, transaction costs. So you know, most people will underperform when you look at the market in totality. So, you know, that's why, you know, buying the index, that's why the, the sort of relentless rules of arithmetic tend to work over the long period of time. Mm. And we, we think the message is getting out there, but it's certainly not mainstream, sort of everybody goes there as a default. You, you mentioned 16 to 18%, is that correct? Yeah, indexing in Australia, for the, in, in the Australian marketplace. Okay. So not just Vanguard, but... No, no, including yeah, all, the, all the indexing shops. Where in the US it's probably more like it's getting towards 40%. And in, the, in the Europe, I think it's sort of mid-20s and rising. So you think there's scope for Australia to, to move towards 40% or even higher? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we think there's a lot of upside or, you know, from a business, our own business point of view, we still think there's, you know, huge amounts of growth in... We talked a little bit about sort of technology and stuff through this, but... Um, I'd argue that indexing has been a disruptive technology with investing. You, know, you mentioned Netflix and etc. We, mm. we think about those as Amazon, in, in, you know, very disruptive sort of te- indexing itself. I think Bogle's invention, um, but the indexing has been, if you like, the sort of disruptive technology. And ETFs, 
people tend to focus on ETFs as being, you know, the exchange traded funds as being the sort of new disruptive thing. You know, I'd argue that all ETFs do is give you an easier way to access indexing. Indexing is the underlying technology that's actually changed the way investors work. ETFs have simply been, it just makes it really simple to access. Just the wrapper around the outside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, instead of having to fill in an eight-page application form and you know, see a, get a PDS and all this sort of stuff, you know, if, if you've already got a discount share brokerage, you know, two clicks, 19 bucks, you're done, and you're dealt. Um, mm-hmm. It just makes, it's, it's sort of brought, it's sort of democratised it in the sense that indexing is now available through that sort of share market platform. Mm. You mentioned something earlier on about the active side of Vanguard, which mm. perhaps many self-directed directed investors aren't aware of. You mentioned a trillion dollars worldwide. Most of which is in the US, has to be said. But we, have, we, have, we are launching some active products here and we'll continue to build that out over the next few years. I'm interested in getting your thoughts about what you mean um, and perhaps some of the products that are coming to market here in Australia. Uh, from what I could tell, there's a, a low volatility and a value... So minimum volatility, um, uh, value, but even you know for some you know I'd argue um, you know our high yield index fund um, is in a sense active because it's people taking a tool you know there's a term called smart beta, mm. um, but really it's about people picking a factor whether it be yield or be value or be minimum volatility, um, momentum another one, so I think those sort of factors uh, which were really if you went back a few years, we're regarded as active investing. And I guess the growth of indexing has meant that those sorts of factors you can now get through, you know, the same sort of approach, discipline, sort of quantitative approach, um, you know, that, that applies to an index fund. So it allows you to buy a specific characteristic of the market. So if you want to overweight, so particularly for, if we think for, you know, for people in, um, you know, retiree mode, I think, you know, low volatility, minimum volatility type funds, which a lot of uh, pension products, pension funds around the world are using, are just as a way of sort of balancing the volatility in returns. So there's lots of ways, I think, that the, the market will continue to develop and mature and allow people to, um, you know, tailor portfolios. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's a large institution or an SMSF. You know, that, you know, that they'll have these tools that they can pretty cost-effectively use to balance portfolios and, and fundamentally you know, manage their risk characteristics. We touched on it earlier on balancing portfolios uh, and potentially for retail investors having a, an investment plan um, and how the passive, purely passive and these active tilts, these funds and you know, multi-assets, so bonds, can be used together in an effective portfolio. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the idea of a of diversification is is probably you know the one free kick we get as investors. Mm. You know, by diversifying across, you can actually uh, spread the risk. Um, so you know, we we tend to think that the the starting point for any investor uh, needs to be to have a well diversified portfolio. Now, that's not an easy thing to do if you're trying to build it yourself out of individual securities because you need to own you know, your stockbroker will love you but but mm-hmm. you know only because of the transaction fees you're paying so that's where um, sort of pooled vehicles like managed funds or ETFs are actually powerful for individual investors because they allow you with one you know relatively small amount of money to diversify across a whole bunch of asset classes so to me the diversification is both within the asset class how many securities are within the Aussie equity versus the global equities, et cetera. 
uh, and then it's across asset classes, so across property, across fixed income markets, different types, different maturity, um, you know, different international equity markets, merging markets. And if you look at, you know, the, I mean, one of the, I guess, free pieces of information that people can get is if you look on, you know, the Vanguard website or you go to any of the big super funds, you can actually see the portfolio asset allocation for the diversified funds. Mm. Pretty good way of benchmarking your own portfolio. So, you know, if you look at that and say, well, what have I got? What's your asset allocation? Mm. Uh, if you look at SMSF, you typically see, you know, 30% in Aussie equities, maybe 25, 30% in cash, chunk in property usually. Mm-hmm. So you know, does that really, when you balance that up against, um, you know, what Vanguard regards as well diversified, you shouldn't be surprised if you're going to get different performance and risk characteristics because they're very different portfolios. Mm. Mm. That's a good way to do it. A very practical yeah. way to do it. No, it's go to the website and, and it's cheap. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, you mentioned it earlier. You you talked about the interactive chart on the Vanguard website, and uh, I think it's a great resource. I've used it for years to, just to go back and 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 look at the performance of different asset classes over a very long mm. period of time. And some of the interesting features are that you can you can look at different um, prime ministerships or. Mm. Yeah, different political parties, um, but also different events, so innovations up through time, and, and you still, as always, you see this bottom left to top right. I mean, it's not a straight line, but um, bottom left to top right, the trend is there for most asset classes. I'm interested, as we come to the end of our discussion, um, in the last 30 years, we've seen very good performance, particularly from equity markets in Australia, property markets. Interest rates have fallen during that time. Can passive investing still deliver? The answer to that is absolutely. Um, you know, I've now been around funds management uh, long enough to, you know, when markets are running really high, people say to me, oh, now's not the time for indexing. I've lived through a GFC, and at the bottom of it, people are saying, well, now's not the time for indexing. Well, my answer is, well, when is the right time for indexing? And the answer is, it's through all those things. It's just more about how do you build the portfolio by all means, have some active exposure. Take bets where you, where you, you know it actually lines up with your own belief system. But you know, indexing is really saying we're going to try and capture the economic growth of the Australian share market, the U.S. share market, the European share market, the emerging markets. I mean, for Australian investors to be able to very cost-effectively, you know, four basis points, be able to buy the entire U.S. market. So if suddenly you've got Apple, you've got Microsoft, you've got uh, alphabet, you know, you got all, you got exposure to all those fantastic sort of technology companies that we don't have in our local market. To be able to do that, I think, it's just been terrific from an investor's point of view, where they're able to bring all that stuff back home and embed it in their portfolio. So, I think, you know, that said, our outlook would be that returns people should have lower expectation of returns than than say over the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. So lower returns, sort of for longer because of the, the sort of economic cycle and, and market conditions we're experiencing. So I think people need to adjust expectations down instead of eight to 12, 10 to 12% in equity markets, you know, maybe it's more like six to eight. Mm-hmm. And so what does that do to your retirement uh, modeling if you actually factor in the sort of lower return levels, fixed income? You know, people talk about fixed income, oh, you know, returns are so low, should I have it fixed income? Um, you know, our view is that you know, the time you need defensive assets in the portfolio is the time when things are going really, really pear-shaped. Mm. 
and at that point you want them to be very, very defensive. Um, so the role of fixed income, you know, still has an absolute uh, part to play, we think. And, you know, I think the other part of it is that when markets are bubbling along double-digit returns, if you're paying away 2% in fees, who cares? You know, we're good, we're still making 10%, mm. whatever. If, if your portfolio is throwing off 5% and you're paying away 2% in fees, that's a massive impact. So low cost matters more in low return environments, I'd argue, than in you know, high returning markets. So you know, pay attention to the cost because it's the one thing you can absolutely control. And if you can get them down, you know, investing, you know, to use Jack Bogle's expression a bit here, is that you know, it's, it's one of those things that the more you pay, the less you get. So just to keep that in mind in terms of um, you know, what are the fundamental things that are actually within each of our control with our own personal portfolios. You can control cost. You never can control performance. You can set it up that you hope it will get a certain level of return and achieve the objectives. But you know, that's, that's largely up to markets. You use an interesting phrase a few times throughout some of your writing. You've said low cost, high value. And, um, just going back to the interactive chart, I think it's an important disclaimer is realise that you may be looking at a, at a point in time and you know we may be at a particular point in time which makes the results uh, slightly skewed. Okay, so last question, Robin, it's my favourite by far, is if you could go back in time and tell a, a younger you something about money, finance or investing, what would it be? Uh, simply be buy a broad-based diversified index fund and then get on with your life. Mm. Well, Robin, thanks for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great to chat. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.